reading today from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, 20 and 21 in the uh, NIV. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Reading of God's word. Amen. Let's be to God. So as you heard from Lissy, we're beginning a mini-series today uh, on evangelism. So four weeks, four sermons, four Ps of evangelism. Pray, prepare, places, and people. We begin with pray, well, because evangelism begins with prayer. You know, I, I think it's always a good idea to start a sermon reflecting on your own weakness. Um, and shortcomings. I, in terms of evangelism, I'll be honest, I have enough personal embarrassment related to my own youthful evangelistic efforts and the efforts of those around me that I was a little bit relieved when I encountered Reformed theology in college. In Reformed theology, there's a heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of God in grace. Terms like predestination and election were a welcome invitation to relax and at least in my imagination, tell others to cool it with the whole pressure to share my faith thing. God's going to do what God's going to do, I thought. Why work up a sweat and make people uncomfortable? Why bring up God at a dinner party? In the process of working all this theology stuff out during college, I'll admit the place of pr prayer in evangelism became truncated and caricatured in my thinking to simply trying to force the hand of God to elect the reprobate. In other words, the only function prayer could possibly have in evangelism was try to try to argue with God, to, to, like Moses or, or Abraham did, which according to my Reformed theology was a futile endeavor. So prayer and evangelism, at least in my thinking at the time, don't really belong together. And I wonder if you've ever considered the, the place of prayer in evangelism. Maybe you can relate uh, to the philosophical challenges of sovereignty and free will. Or hey, maybe you're a pragmatist and you, you think uh, about all the evangelism that you could accomplish if you didn't idle away your time praying about it first. Maybe you see prayer is the foundation for evangelism, only you never really get past the foundation. It's easier to pray for missionaries and agencies like YWAM than to do the hard work of evangelism ourselves. You know, our passage helps us to see why evangelism begins with prayer. Our passage today, you know, it could be called um, inner dialogue of the Trinity. I mean, this is Jesus praying to the Father. At a critical moment in Christ's last days, he prays for the church. He prays for unity among his followers. Um, he prays that they would pass the stress test of Good Friday. And that instead, that the church would be held together in God. He also prays that the church, for the church across time, as in into the future, the church is a missionary community that will continue to expand. And, and Jesus wants new members to be enfolded into that community with that same spirit of unity. 
in our passage, there are two essential truths that we can't lose hold of. God prepares the way for evangelism, and God uses us to proclaim the gospel. I'll say that again. There are two essential truths that I think are, are pretty essential to this, this passage. God prepares the way in evangelism, and God uses us to proclaim the gospel. Our, our, our passage brings forth these two subjects that are often thought contradictory. God's sovereignty in, in election and, evangel, and evangelism to those outside the church. Evangelism begins with, with this prayer, really. Um, the, reason, the reason that prayer precedes evangelism is, is actually deeply theological. God is sovereign in grace, and so actually he's our only hope in evangelism. And the Lord, Jesus, is the one and only agent of evangelism whose work we join. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break those out. But first, let's, let's talk about that, that first piece here, the sovereignty. And next, we're going to talk about the evangelism piece. So there, there's sovereignty. There's fingerprints of sovereignty all over this prayer. Jesus recognizes that God was at work in drawing people to him. And, and he prays that God would help to per preserve these people. In verse 6, so earlier than our passage started, so chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus says that he manifested God's name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Do you notice that language, whom you gave me? He describes his disciples as people that God gave him out of the world. Here, God is the agent in the action. He's the actor. He's the chooser. He's the giver. Yours they were. That's what he says next. These are people that God has set apart, people that belong to God. In verse 9, Jesus turns his prayer to the church. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those you, you have given me, for they are yours. Now, now, he did pray for the world on many occasions, but on this occasion, he focuses his prayer on the church. In verse 11, he prays to, to keep these people in your name, that they may be one even as I, as we are one, you and me. He prays that the church would, would be preserved as God's people and that they be united, unified, held together, believing in unison. Preserved insofar as they belong to God and they trust God, unified in their belief in the person and the work of Christ. And our passage then refers, so our passage today, starting in verse 20, it refers to the future generation of believers. I, I, what, I, what I hope you see here is that Jesus prayed that God would act to gather and preserve the church in unity across time. His prayer shows us that Jesus relied on God's sovereignty and grace. And this is the consistent message throughout Scripture, that, that God from all eternity has chosen whom he will save and that Christ has, has come to save those whom the Father has given him. God is sovereign in, in, in grace. But the other side of that message that we can't logic ourselves out of is the fact that Christ offers himself as the savior of the world and guarantees to bring to glory everyone who trusts in him. That's why we evangelize. We evangelize because we share our hope, because there is a promise to each and every person who believes. Evangelism is all over this prayer. Um, Jesus prays, so this is our passage, I do not ask for these only, but I ask, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prays for the fruit of their missionary endeavors. He prays for the church across time into the future, for future Christians, even us, even for us. 
wild to think about. And then let me read these words really closely. He said, for those who, be who will believe in me through their word. So through their word, the church across time is reliant on voices. The gospel spread through the words of the apostle and through the words of their converts and through the words of the next generation of converts and so on. One of my pro professors in seminary, he, he actually charted his academic lineage. Um, so the person who supervised the supervisor of his supervisor's PhD. So you, you chart that. And he, he was in the, the counseling world. And so his academic tree may have actually included the actual father of psychology, Sigmund Freud, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and you know, I think it would also be pretty cool um, to see the family tree of, or to see the, the, the family tree of faith. Um, so, I, I imagine it would be pretty knotted, but, but to see, I mean, you connected to the people whose words helped you believe, and then where the words of someone else helped them believe. And if you think about that lineage from time to time, I think it'd be pretty wild and knotted, except in one place. And that's the stump of this, this wild and knotted tree. Um, if we take the faith lineage far back enough for each of us, for each and every Christian, we'll get right past the reformers, right past the church fathers, even back beyond the apostles to Jesus himself, every time. And the faith tree um, has grown up because people belonging to God held onto the heritage of their faith and they helped other people believe. I mean, you can be that voice for other people. You can help graft them into the wild looking tree that is our faith that is rooted in Christ. I mean, how amazing is that thought? This is the, 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 I think there's a real heart for evangelism in this prayer. Jesus prays this in verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I mean, Jesus' prayer here is so that the world may believe. Um, there's no qualifications. The, the reason it's important is, is because Jesus was sent by God, um, and that is at the heart of, of accepting his message. We have to believe he was sent. Um, the things Jesus said and did have consequences because of who he was. Re that repentance and believing in him are the foundations of peace with God. God's grace is given to us in Jesus. And we have to know that he was more than just some guy making claims about who he was. The heart of evangelism is pointing people to grace, that grace available to, through God in Christ. Um, and that's why he wants the world to know that, that God sent him. Because he wants the world, that's his longing, for the world to turn to him and walk in forgiveness and new life. You know, you, you see both of those things in this passage. You see that, that reliance on sovereignty and, and this heart for evangelism. And now thinking about sovereignty and evangelism, I, Reformed Christians have some unique challenges in evangelism, specifically because we believe God is first and foremost in salvation. It can make us a little bit hesitant and even fatalistic. Um, I mean, you don't get the, the nickname frozen chosen for nothing. Um, the fact that God, who is outside time, has selected those he will save means that the final product of that wild-looking tree, that thing which represents the visible church, is known. Um, if you're anything like me, when, when you've, I first learned about Reformed theology, you, you may wonder 
well, what's the point then? What's the point if it's already known? Does God's sovereignty and grace take the wind out of your sails? And if people are going to be saved no matter what you do, why do anything at all? I mean, these are some of the unique questions to our tradition. J.I. Packer was a, was a well-known um, Reformed evangelical theologian, um, and he took up this question of God's sovereignty and evangelism and how they relate to one another, and he introduces the, the, an idea from uh, Immanuel Kant, actually, the, the concept of an antinomy. So this is a word, it's almost like a paradox, two apparently incompatible ideas between two truths. They're equally rational, but seemingly contradictory, both undeniable. The call to evangelize with any real sense of a consequence to it does run up against the determinism of God's election in the same way that the problem of free will stands against uh, universal causality. Um, the, te the, the theological tendency that we have, that theologians have, that anybody's going to have is to try to work this out logically and to stress either one side or the other of the equation, either the human responsibility side or the God sovereignty side. And when we stress the human responsibility side, I mean, of course, we rightly see the importance of prayer, of fasting, of, of winsome witness. We also stress the, the human responsibility of listening, of believing, of, of accepting, of choosing God. On the other end, when we stress God's sovereignty, we rightly see that God alone softens the heart. He enables us to see our own need. He creates a longing in us. He leads us to repentance. He, he awakens faith in us. God changes our will towards obedience. These things are both true. I mean, what can we do then? Um, in a real sense, the answer is to embrace that there's mystery in the equation and recognize that we won't be able to find a formula with words that fit human logic. We can't mix together 50% sovereignty and 50% evangelism. When scripture teaches both in full force, no, God created an equation where we evangelize. And God created an equation where he knows the end from the beginning. There are consequences to accepting both the reality of God's sovereignty and the call to evangelize. And, I, and, I, and that's what I wanna talk about next. Because I think, I think for us, if we take both seriously, the starting point is, is self-reflection, right? If God is the agent and, and, and the agent in this action, the chooser, the giver, then we can come back to the recognition that, that God was entirely responsible for our own conversion. God is the one who preserves us in this state of grace. We exist in a state of dependence on God from beginning to end. We can't choose God unless God changes our heart to want to choose him. I don't know about you, being chosen by God is both humbling and it awakens in me this sense of gratitude. It also reconnects me to the experience of my initial conversion where God's grace was fully on display. I truly believe if, that, if, if we're going to evangelize, it can't be from a place of guilt or duty, but it comes from a place of gratitude. We can't twist people's arms into the kingdom, and, and likewise, we can't have our arms twisted into twisting theirs. Existing in this state of dependence on God is exactly why prayer is the foundation for a ministry of evangelism not as a means to bend the will of God or to convince God to act, to, to add someone to the elect that we assume isn't already part of the chosen, but to connect us to the heart of God for the world and for our friends 
and for our family. When we hear Jesus's prayer so that the world may believe, let's not be so quick to add qualifications to that. Knowing God is sovereign gives us the patience to trust in God's timing, which is pretty much never our timing. We don't know the future. We don't know what the final product of that wild looking tree is gonna be, but God does. Amen. If you're on the fence about the value of, of prayer for evangelism, let me offer one illustration um, from the ministry where prayer is foremost. Um, the Salvation Army in Vancouver's downtown east side calls itself 614 Ministry. It's in reference to Isaiah 614, uh, 61.4, um, which says this. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I mean, according to their mission statement, Isaiah 61.4 describes Vancouver's downtown east side. One person in the ministry comments on how the city has been lost to illegitimate businesses, drug and human trafficking, and gang violence. Since late February 2004, 614 Ministry, believe it or not, has had a nonstop prayer meeting in a, in a slum hotel in a room for it. This mission wants, that wants to win back this city for Jesus engages in daily prayer walks through the cities, pray, b- praying biblical passages and, and praying blessings over the, the, the businesses that are real and trying to, trying to make it and, and praying prayers of restraint over those that are illegitimate. Um, prayers of protection, prayers of restoration for hurting people. Every morning, 30 minutes, there, there are informal meetings with, with people who read scripture and pray together. And in the past 16 years, they are starting to see people get saved. They're starting to see people delivered and walking out of gangs, committing themselves to lives of sobriety. Several of these businesses that they call illegitimate have closed down. And one article says this, the most notorious corner in the country is now unrecognizably cleaned up. I mean, that that is worth celebrating. And prayer led the way. As I've come to learn North Point, this church began with prayer gatherings in a small room at Gordon-Conwell. There's power in prayer. Um, I opened this sermon asking, why does prayer precede proclamation or evangelism anyway? Why is pray the first thing we talk about when we talk about evangelism? I mean, Christ's prayer certainly preceded the the apostles' preaching, but so too is it with us, that the prayer changes the total situation by changing our hearts, helping us to see God's grace in salvation, even helping us to, to tune into his leading. Prayer helps us to persevere and have, have patience with friends and family that, that are hard to talk to about Christ or, or outright hostile to the message of the gospel. The gospel is certainly not a friendly message. It is a message of, of a total allegiance shift, a surrender, a world reorientation, a, a step into a world of faith where things like impossibilities and antinomies exist. And while God knows the final outcome, of what that wild looking tree is gonna look like, we can neither give up on anyone or lose hope that Christ is the way of salvation.
Christ offers himself freely as the savior of the world and invites anyone who would believe in him into a lifelong reliance on him in the context of life with his people, unified, existing in unison. I want to pray for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would pray that a spirit that is willing to open up and share our the realness of our life, the realness of our faith with our friends and neighbors and families would, would awaken in us. I pray that we would, would not feel hopeless. Um, I pray that we would be reignited with um, excitement, that, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you. I thank you for everything that you have done in this world. Um, and I thank you that you call us. You call us. And I pray that that we would respond in, in ways that, that bless this world. Um, I pray that we would use our words to grow the wild-looking tree, which is your kingdom. We pray this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.